0: Amen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week, we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing South Pacific.
1: There is nothing like a day, nothing. We feel restless, we feel blue. We feel lonely and in brief, We feel every kind of feeling, but the feeling of relief. We feel hungry as the wolf felt when he met Red Riding Hood. What don't we feel? We don't feel good.
0: But first, how are we doing? I hope you're doing well. I hope this week, uh, has treated you kindly. I hope that you are feeling rested. Patty, always glad to have you here in the booth. Thank you so much for joining us every single week. Look, we gotta get we, we gotta get this news out there to the people that don't know about it. Britney Spears, your musical is on its way. It's on its way. It's on the road to its Chicago tryout. The show is called Once Upon a One More Time, and that's a very hard title to remember. Britney, I don't know if you realize this, but Once Upon a One More Time, that's a hard title to remember and say out loud once upon a one more time, once upon a one more time, once upon a one more time. After a while, I start to sound like an elderly seagull. I don't know how well that's going to go over, but, you know, it, it's great. We got a, a jukebox show showcasing your entire back catalog. This is going to be fantastic. I mean, and it's going to sit right alongside all of these great bio shows that we've been getting over the last few years. I mean, between Tina, The Cher Show, Don Summer, Summer, The Donna Summer show. This is going to say, oh, that's right. That's right. It's not a bio musical like the shows I just cited. Uh, no, instead, uh, this show is, let me see if I can remember this right. Uh, the show is about fairy tale princesses who are members of a book club. They are forced to read the same book, uh, in and out of every meeting, that being the collection of grim fairy tales until their fairy godmother shows up and teaches them about feminism. And from the there, uh, you know, singing and dancing. (laughs) That's all we know about the plot, apparently, of Once Upon a One More Time. Uh, This show, as I said, is coming to Chicago, and it's going to be in the theater where the Michael Jackson show was going to be. If you remember me talking about that on the podcast, there is also a Michael Jackson jukebox musical in development called Can't Stop Till You Get Enough. That's no longer coming to Chicago. Apparently, the, the Jackson estate decided they wanted that to get to Broadway as soon as fucking possible. Might have something to do with the release of a certain documentary. I have a feeling that they want to try and get that money in the fucking accounts as fast as they goddamn can. You gotta profit off that pedophile ghost. Ooh, Pedophile ghost! Gotta get that money. Uh, so instead of that show, uh, we're gonna have uh, instead, Bernie Spears' Once Upon a One More Time. Ha, ha, get off my... Barnacle. So that's the news this week. Uh, we are, of course, talking about South Pacific. Uh, <laughs> it's not a melody from the show at all. Let's get some show facts. Let's let's just calm down for a second. I think I'm going a little off the rails. already. we right, we're we're recording this uh, at nighttime. Normally we record it, you know, a little after lunch. So this is, this this episode's gonna have a nighttime feel to it. It's it's as if we're under the blood moon. I do say. Bloody Mary's (laughs) moon? I don't know. Put a stick of celery in it and we'll see. (laughs) Maybe it can convince me. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's a good thing to admit every now and then. So, uh, South Pacific is an adaptation of a 1947 short story collection known as Tales of the South Pacific. Apparently they, I'm serious, when they were writing the musical, they got rid of the Tales of the, they got rid of that part because they were too afraid that, I think, according to Wikipedia, they were too afraid of... Puns. I think they were afraid of punsters. Those wicked punsters. Maybe this is just something I would have... You you had to live through it to understand why. Because in 2019, I don't understand the fear of what could have happened with that... with that risky title, Tales of the South Pacific. Oh, what the punsters will do to that. I was a little confused as to how Wikipedia was trying to explain that. So, Tales of the South Pacific uh, was written by James A. Mickener? Mickener? Let's say, Mickener, and would go on to receive the uh, this short story collection, I should say, would go on to receive the Pulitzer Prize. The stories focus on the U.S. Navy during World War II, but the details, I should say, including the names of very islands and the nature of missions described in them were fictitious. The fourth and eighth stories in the collection, which are known as Fodala and Our Heroine, provided the most direct inspiration for the musical. Now, Wikipedia states South Pacific is the only quote-unquote major American musical set during World War II, though I'm not sure how we're defining major when we have other Broadway shows like Over Here and Allegiance on record. Those shows weren't nearly as successful as South Pacific, that's true, but is that how we're defining major Wikipedia? I guess Cabaret and The Sound of Music don't count because those shows depict a lead-up to World War II rather than the war itself. I don't know. So ultimately, South Pacific would become the 1950 winner of the Tony Award for Best musical. It originally opened on Broadway on April 7th, 1949 at the Majestic Theater, and eventually moved to the Broadway Theater in 1953 to make way for another Rodgers and Hammerstein show, Me and Juliet. South Pacific ultimately ran for a total of 1,925 performances, making it the second longest-running musical in Broadway history, behind Rodgers and Hammerstein's own Oklahoma. It currently sits at number 37 on Wikipedia's list of longest-running Broadway shows, right between Pippin at 1,944 performances and The Magic Show, 1,920 performances. I've referenced this Wikipedia list in the past. I should note that that list includes both musicals and plays, so that has been noted. Now, I just didn't want you to think it was a list that only covered musicals. I I, I, admit, it, I admit it when I say that I only under understood that after having looked at that list many, many times. During the final performance of South Pacific, Myron McCormick, who had been a cast member from the beginning, led the audience in a recitation of Auld Lang Syne. The curtain never fell as a way of honoring the show's historic run. The book of South Pacific was written by Oscar Hammerstein II and Josh Logan. Josh Logan, who was also the director of the original production, received a writing credit after consulting with Hammerstein on the script's military aspects. Hammerstein uh, apparently got he fell way behind in the development of that book, and it was mainly because he really didn't know anything about the military or how it worked. Logan had that experience, and so he was able to help essentially complete the book. Logan's compensation for these efforts would be a source of ire for decades to come. And that's just a nice way of saying everyone kind of got pissed off at each other when it came to credit and money. Oh, that's actually more important. (laughs) When it comes to that work, yeah, you would want that money. And so Josh Logan was kind of frustrated about that for about, oh, I'd say about 3000 decades. I think they're still fighting about it in hell. The music was written by Richard Rogers. The lyrics were written by Oscar Hammerstein II. The director, of course, was Josh Logan. He would go on to direct the 1958 film adaptation of South Pacific. The musical director was Salvatore de la Sola, and the choreographer was Joshua Logan, here credited as uh, the musical staging by Joshua Logan. So choreography, not a term we're throwing around. Instead, we're getting musical staging. Just want to make that clear. The set design was by Joe Milsner, lighting design by Joe Milsner, costume design by Elizabeth Montgomery, and the original Broadway cast included Mary Martin, famously uh, known as Peter pan her himself, Ezio Pinza, William Tabard, Betty St. John, Juanita Hall, Myron McCormick, Barbara Luna, Michael DeLeon, Noel DeLeon. I believe those uh, two young performers, they were alternates for one of the kid roles in the show. Uh, I believe that's Jerome, the character of Jerome. Martin Wolfson was also in the cast, Harvey Stevens, and I do have oh, this is an interesting bit of trivia just regarding that that entire cast that I just broke down. Now, I'm Unlike previous Rogers and Hammerstein projects, South Pacific would not employ a homogenous chorus or ensemble. Every actor on stage was given a proper character name, and it was thought at the time that this would become a prevailing trend in the way that musicals were written and staged. Uh, Q. Ron Howard voice, it did not. Additional Tony nods. So beyond its win for Best Musical, South Pacific also won an award for Best Book of a Musical, which went to Oscar Hammerstein II and Josh Logan. Best original score to Richard Rogers. Best actor in a musical, Ezio Pinza. Best actress in a musical, Mary Martin. Best featured actor in a musical, Myron McCormick. Best featured actress in a musical, Juanita Hall. Best producer of a musical, Uh, this went to Hammerstein and Rogers in association with Leland Hayward and Joshua Logan. It won best director, Joshua Logan, and it won best scenic design, Joe Milsner. So, 10 wins overall all when you include best musical, the production would go on to win the Pulitzer Prize for drama, the second musical to do so after *Of The I Sing*. Now, initially, the prize was only awarded to Rodgers and Hammerstein. That announcement was amended to include Joshua Logan, who was very annoyed. Just one more reason for Joshua Logan to be annoyed about this process. I have to assume he made a lot of angry calls to make that change happen. The show was. One one of the first to offer souvenirs for sale uh, nowadays of course you go out into the lobby uh, before during the intermission after the show and you're gonna get assaulted with merchandise well you can you can thank South Pacific for that it really put that gimmick that little trend on the map uh, so these souvenirs included neckties scarves lipstick fake ticket stubs music boxes dolls and hairbrushes Mary Martin's short hairstyle yeah, uh, she kind of sported a short hairstyle uh, for the role of Nelly. Uh, that short hairstyle, and onstage, stage, she she participated in this on stage shower shampoo sequence, and everything everything that I just described to you combined prompted a huge short hair craze. The original cast album spent sixty nine weeks at number one on the Billboard chart and four hundred weeks on the charts in general, making it the best-selling record of the 1940s. Fun bit of trivia from Wikipedia regarding the original London production. Quote, On January 31st, 1952, King George VI attended the production with his daughter, Princess Elizabeth, and other members of the royal family. He died less than a week later. End quote. South Pacific killed him, I do say! Mary Martin, you transition from Broadway to the London production. You're the common factor. <laughs> oh boy, that was good, that was a good character I liked. <laughs> it was a good character and I liked her. Let's get a breakdown of the plot. So the characters are as such. I'm just going to give you a little list of the characters. We have Nellie Forbush, Emile DeBeck, Nagana and Jerome, who are Emile's children, Lieutenant Joseph Cable, Liot, Bloody Mary, C.B. Luther Billis, Captain George Brackett and Captain William Harbison. So the term CB, you heard me say CB Luther Billis. I kept hearing that. I kept reading it on the Wikipedia page, and I kept hearing it in the show itself, and it drove me nuts. And if you're curious like me to know what the term CB means, the term CB comes from the phrase construction battalions, uh, abbreviated as the letters CB. You get what I'm saying. So uh, CBs were construction Workers who helped to rebuild naval bases during World War II. The show's plot revolves around two key couples. The first is Nellie Forbush and Emile Debec. Nellie is a nurse in the US Navy who has been stationed on an unnamed island in the South Pacific. Emile is a French plantation owner who has two children, Nagana and Jerome, that Nellie does not know about. They have known each other, Emile and Nellie, for two weeks, but during that time, his children, their existence, never come up once. Never come up once. I am going to belabor this point as much as I can, because Emile is supposed to be this wonderful, classically handsome, silver fox, male ingenue, a classic character that any talented man would want to play, and I just cannot get over the fact that he doesn't tell the woman he presumably loves about his children. When Nellie is eventually introduced to Emile's children, she is horrified to learn that their mother was a Polynesian woman who has passed away. Her racist prejudices, which she claims are inbred and cannot be helped, prevent her from staying with Emile. He is crestfallen, and when he feels that he has nothing left to lose, despite you know the fact that he has two children, Emile agrees to help the Americans on the island uh, help them carry out a dangerous spy mission. The second couple is comprised of Lieutenant Joseph Cable and a young Tonkinese woman named Layotte. Cable arrives on the unnamed island to spearhead the aforementioned spy mission, which could turn the tide of the war against uh, the Japanese. Cable is taken by C.B. Luther Billis to a nearby island known as Bali High, where he meets. Has sex with and supposedly, quote unquote, falls in love with Liott. Keep in mind that Cable and Liott do not speak the same language, and this is not Disney's Pocahontas, in which the language barrier is overcome by listening to Juan's heart. Liott's mother, who is known as Bloody Mary to the Americans, demands that Cable marry Liott after essentially handing her over to him for sex. Did I mention the fact that Liat barely speaks? She speaks French, but she barely speaks. And if you're wondering, does she ever sing? Does she ever sing about her emotions? Outward, internal, otherwise? Anything in between? Does she ever sing a single note on stage? The answer is no! Liat does not sing. She barely talks, and she does not sing. She barely communicates. She's barely a human being on stage. I don't even really buy that she's a character with any sort of inner life. She's pushed and pulled onto to and offstage by Bloody Mary throughout the entire production. It, she's not a character. It's, it's, she doesn't, it's a sketch. It's barely a sketch. It's a fucking doodle of a character. It's a doodle. So, Cable, despite quote-unquote being in love with Liat, believes he cannot take a Tonkinese woman back to his American family and so he chooses to abandon her so he can go on the spy mission. When Emil asks Cable about the prejudices that he and Nellie share, Cable bitterly relays that his family Passed down their racist beliefs to him. Determined to change, Cable vows to never return to the United States after he and Emil have completed their spy mission. Unfortunately, the mission ends with Cable being killed by Japanese zero planes and Emil goes missing. Nellie, believing Emil to be dead, becomes a surrogate mother for his children and comes to love them. Emil is revealed to have survived the mission he's not dead he's not a zombie he's not a zombie he's not a zombie he's alive he's he survived and everyone's happy except for Liat who was almost forced into marrying another plantation owner on the island uh Liat refused to go through with that marriage because she quote-unquote loves Cable even though they don't speak the same language it's tragic and so fucked up and uh, now she's left to grieve her loss you know, all alone. But hey, war is hell, you know. And by that we mean sometimes people die and sometimes they don't. And the important thing is that Nellie no longer wants to use the N-word when looking at her lover's children or talking about her lover's dead wife. Maybe she thinks the N-word, you know, but she's working on it, okay? Inches. Inches inches. We achieve miles through inches. Huzzah! If you think I'm kidding about the N-word stuff, if you think that's just a, you know, a crass bit, an exaggeration, in the original story collection, Nellie absolutely refers to Emile's family uh, with the N-word, and a key moment in the musical's original book, which was cut and then restored for the 2008 Broadway revival, has her nearly saying it before actively choosing to instead use the word colored. I'm glad this moment was put back into the show because it forces us to deal with the fact that Nellie, who is otherwise a very plucky musical theater ingenue, has an ugly, undeniably racist side that she'll have to confront if we're ever going to give a shit about her by the end of the show. If it seems like I didn't say much about C.B. Luther Billis... It's because he's a largely comic character who is somehow all up in and largely irrelevant to the overall plot. His main motivation for going to the island of Bali High is a desire to witness a boar's tooth ceremony. Whatever. I mean, that's the ultimate whatever plot point for me. The other Seabees mock him because he runs a laundry service, and that's, you know, vaguely gay. Uh, crap. <laughs> I almost forgot to mention... That at one point, Cable's superior officers convinced Nelly to spy on Emile because they want him to join their spy mission, but they're not clear on his politics. You know, they heard that Emile once murdered a man while living in France, but to hear Emile tell it, he, quote, stood up to a bully in his village and the guy died accidentally but no one misses him what the fuck you know this just struck me what the fuck is with rogers and hammerstein shows where people die and it's sort of fine is emile curly from oklahoma was there a french oklahoma parallel universe going on where emile killed a french version of judd i i presume that his name was Jed. John in Oklahoma, he's killed and everyone sort of has this attitude of like, no one really fucking liked him anyway. And the guy Emile kills in France, (laughs) oh my God, he he just straight up says to Nelly like, look, no one bemoaned his death and I didn't really receive any criticism for it. Is that okay? And Nelly's like, yeah, that's fine. (laughs) I killed a man with my bare hands, semi-accidentally, but no one misses him. You're fine with that, right? Yeah, that's fine cognac I'd love some for the purposes of researching South Pacific I listened to the 1949 original Broadway cast album I have seen I did not rewatch but I have seen the 1958 film adaptation Uh, in regards to that I do remember it as alternating between semi-stylized slash trippy and totally stilted. It's essentially one part proto-apocalypse now, one part military sitcom. Maybe the TV quality has to do with the fact that Ray Walston plays uh, C.B. Billis. Uh, Ray Walston, of course, (laughs) we all know this from My Favorite Martian. We all know that show. The movie is not well liked, but I recall it as being strange and occasionally sumptuous in terms of its cinematography. It's not terrible is what I'm trying to say. I think the reputation is undeserved. I watched clips. You can't watch the whole thing, thank God. There are clips of the 2001 television film adaptation, Uh, so people who dislike the 1958 film, they must loathe this television version it aired on ABC so you know ABC had a pension in the late 90s and early 2000s for producing TV musicals and the results were admittedly mixed I think we can admit that now even if we have nostalgia for them there was Cinderella with Brandy and Whitney Houston in 97 Annie in 99 Geppetto in 2000 does anyone remember that Geppetto with Drew Carey Julia Louis Dreyfus, and Usher you know Usher the 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 sinister leader of Pleasure Island what the fuck? Uh, but their South Pacific, ABC's South Pacific, is, is, is indeed awful. It's it's terrible. The network would go on to produce uh, <laughs> The Music Man, starring a man who committed vehicular manslaughter in 2003, before calling it quits on the TV musical. They have never jumped into the live TV musical game, despite plans in 2017 to produce some form. We never really got any final details on it, and I assume the project has been dumped, but it was going to be some form of Disney's The Little Mermaid. Anyway, this television version of South Pacific... <laughs> watch the uh, watch a little bit of the there is nothing like a dame performance which is shot with all of the grace of a corporate holiday retreat video you watch 8 months after it happened because your general manager couldn't get around to editing it in his garage yeah I mean various groups of men during this number stare straight into the barrel of the camera as if they're representing various departments and they're singing like fucking Christmas songs on Hawaii in Hawaii I mean hey look it's HR oh look that's Dave from sales commercials have more cinematic flair, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, just before this recording, I sat down and I watched the 2005 Carnegie Hall concert uh, that is available in full on YouTube. It stars Reba McIntyre, Brian Stokes Mitchell making another appearance here on the podcast. Alec Baldwin as Billis, so oh, I should say Brian Stokes Mitchell plays uh, Emile De Beck. Uh, Alec Baldwin plays Billis and Dylan Baker. Uh, The man who agreed to uh, play a tuna sandwich-making pedophile in a Hollywood motion picture, Dylan Baker, you were on Smash. Welcome to this, I suppose. Uh, Again, this is available on YouTube, so I watched it in full. It's a little under two hours. I will only say this. Reba McIntyre is charming. Brian Stokes Mitchell is... Kind of boring, even though his voice is fantastic. I would say that his performance, the character, to be fair, character is doing him no favors. The character of Emil is quite boring. Alec Baldwin is sort of bad. (laughs) I'm going to play, I have the album version as well of this concert. I'm just going to play some of the dialogue from Alec Baldwin, who seems to be doing, I don't know what the fuck he's doing. He's doing some like super high-pitched version of a guys and dolls gangster. Just listen to this.
1: Say, is that a boar's tooth bracelet on your wrist? From over there on Bally High? The Boar's Tooth Ceremony? Why does it have to be off-limits? We gotta get a boat and get over there.
0: But, Bill, it's only officers can sign out boats. I'll latch on to some
1: officer who'd like to see the Boar's Tooth Ceremonial as much as I would. There's dancing and drinking.
0: Everything. It's not good. I mean, he's getting a lot of laughs, but it's a very white, waspy Carnegie Hall audience, and they, they, give, they give rapturous applause to fucking anything. But all that said... You might want to watch it for Rita McIntyre, because her voice is actually quite quite fantastic. It's as clear as a crystalline bell. It's 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 delightful. I, I had my reservations. I thought that it would be a weird bit of stunt casting that wouldn't pan out. Uh, but apparently, she's not only fantastic in this, but there was a similar Carnegie Hall concert production of Annie Get Your Gun, and I don't think that's available on video, though, so I'm just going just gonna to put that out there. You can't watch that. I don't think you can. I also listened to the 2008 Broadway Revival cast album, and I watched the 2008 Broadway Revival... Tony's medley. So if you don't th- if you fucking think that I didn't sit with South Pacific all fucking week, believe me, I did. <laughs> I listened to every fucking available album and I watched anything and everything. God. ah, <laughs> I have a fucking expert on a show that I find to be utterly soporific. <laughs> Let's talk about the songs. The Overture. Did you hear that? What a classic sting. Rodgers and Hammerstein know that they should open with their catchiest, most haunting melody, and that would be their three-note bolly High Sting, baby. It really is quite effective, and whenever I hear it, I imagine enormous red curtains opening at great speed. You know, just pictures pop up in my mind. You know how you listen to music and pictures pop up in your brain? P.S. I don't wanna know how expensive my South Pacific set would be because it involves a massive revolving island and tropical neon flowers straight out of Avatar that are bigger than VW Bugs. It would rightfully be panned by critics. Dites-moi is a song sung by Emile Debec's children. It opens the show. We see That's the first thing we see on stage, these two little children singing this song. I don't have much to say on this, but I was very curious to know the English translation of the French lyrics. Maybe you were as well, but I never looked it up. Let's learn together. I'm gonna give you that education now. Uh, dites-moi is translated as, tell me why life is beautiful. Tell me why life is gay. Tell me why, dear miss, is it because you love me, and I find that to be quite adorable. The children in the concert version are quite adorable. Very good job, children! I don't want children, though, so go away. (laughs) Every time I think, ah, look at that random child. How adorable! I also think to myself, go away. As I've said before, I think children are essentially broken. Until they become adults, they are malformed.
1: When the sky is bright They call me a cockeyed optimist, immature and incurably green. I have heard people rant and rave raven bellow, that we're done and we might as well be dead. But I'm only a cockeyed optimist, and I can't get it into my head.
0: Rogers and Hammerstein like their leading ladies to be upbeat at the top of their shows. That much is clear. That much is made clear by a song like Nellie's A Cockeyed Optimist, which makes it very clear that she's a very optimistic person, even in the middle of World War II, when people are dying all around her. Her attitude is, ah, get over it. It's not the end of the world. It's literally called World War II. World War I was known as the war to end all wars, and now you find yourself in the sequel. Millions are dying all around you, Nellie. Put your feet in the sand. Have a coconut drink, Nellie. Song's irresponsible, I think. It's a little insensitive. This song sits comfortably right alongside Anna's I Whistle a Happy Tune from The King and I and Maria Von Trapp's My Favorite Things from The Sound of Music. All of these ladies are straight up apple-cheeked, I do say.
1: We are not alike, probably I'd bore him. He's a cultured Frenchman, I'm a little hip. Younger men than I, officers and doctors, probably pursue her, she could ever take. Wonder why I feel cheery and jumpy. I am like a schoolgirl waiting for a dance. Can I ask her now? I am like a schoolboy, what will be her answer? I have
0: a Twin soliloquies. Okay, so this is the first of many, many tunes Rogers and Hammerstein have written for South Pacific to whet the audience's appetite for musical theater romance. If your favorite thing in a musical is romance, South Pacific has it in fucking spades. It's serving it up, baby. I appreciate those who are enraptured by this kind of stuff, but to be honest, I glaze over fairly quickly. I love how throughout all of Emile's inner monologue, he never once thinks, Should I tell her about my kids? Maybe I should tell her about my kids. Maybe she doesn't like kids. That could be a deal-breaker. I should probably say something about my kids. Bum, 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 bum. What? his chief concern being middle aged why is that the first thing that comes to mind she probably thinks i'm fucking old she probably thinks my pubes are gray the kids the kids the kids the kids you know one could one if you were if you were the one to be playing a meal you could think to yourself well Maybe he's concerned that if he reveals that his children are dark skinned, maybe he's afraid of the kind of reaction that Nelly winds up displaying. Maybe he's afraid that he uh, is going to get some sort of racist reaction from this woman that he's fallen in love with over the last two weeks. That's a, I think that's a really big stretch. I don't know if we can really give the character as written that kind of credit. I, I mean, I watched the concert version and in, in the fucking concert version, he, he says, hey, Nellie, close your eyes. Now open them. Hey, look, there are two kids here. They're mine. Huh? You still want to get married? What? You don't? It's not how you do it. It's not It's not how you did it back then. I'm not going to, we can't say, it was a different time. It was a fucking different time. And shut up. It, come on. The same conversation in 2019 had to have happened back then, too. If you don't fucking do it, you're being irresponsible.
1: evening. You may see a stranger across a crowd, and somehow you know, you know, even.
0: When I listen to Some Enchanted Evening, which which I like, yeah, don't get it twisted, okay, as I go into this bit, I like to imagine, as I'm listening to Some Enchanted Evening, I like to imagine thousands of white-collar madman dopes sobbing in their palatially decorated dens. Literally nothing makes these white guys cry except for this one song and they have no idea why. They don't have the emotional skills to articulate what moves through them when they hear this, and I find that to be very, very funny. (laughs) Knock, knock, knock. Honey, why are you crying? Leave me! Some enchantity. It's so loud. Turn it down. No! (laughs) about me, the way these idiots talk about Bloody Mary, I would slaughter them. Like, oh, (laughs) that's funny. My skin is like a baseball glove. That's hilarious. My boars are eating you now. I know this is an old show, but why are the lyrics during the Bloody Mary song so repetitive? You couldn't come up with any more variations on da-da-da-da-da-da. Da, 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 bum, 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 bum. I mean, come up with more lyrics, alright? You're Rogers and fucking Hammerstein. Anyway, here's a fun new lyric I came up with Bloody Mary's drinking, turtle blood, bum 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 bum, Bloody Mary's drinking, turtle blood, bum bum bum, ba. Bloody Mary's drinking, turtle blood. Now let's watch raw gay porn. Now let's watch raw gay
1: like a day, and nothing looks like a day, there are no drinks like a day, and nothing thinks like a day, nothing acts like a day, or attracts like a day.
0: Nothing Like a Dame is the single most famous song about coming ever written. Ooh, these guys want to come so bad. Oh, it makes them so mad that they want to come so bad. Oh, their fucking glad bags are filled with cum and they want to release it into the world. They don't want to jerk off. No, nah, for fucking wusses. They want to have sex. They want to fuck, baby. They want to fuck. They want to fuck and they want to come. They want to come as a result of fucking by God. <laughs> it really is just. So So fucking sexual. Um, (laughs) I wrote down another lyric. I'm just gonna sing this too. I am a fucking punchy, obnoxious idiot today. (laughs) We've got Atari and Nintendo, we play with all our chums. What don't we do? We do not come. That's my other lyric. I used to do an onstage bit. Uh, I don't think you could rightly call it a sketch and by used to I did it once uh, about a high school theater director trying to get his students to uh, butch it up during their rendition of this song there is nothing like a dame I've been told to do that quite a bit by directors I've been told to uh, keep it grounded you know uh, beef it up be a man be more of a man you know what a man's like right it's so fun. Let me tell you, I always want to say to these directors, hey, you know, if you want to do shows about men who are one million percent straight, there's not even a single gossamer, spiders, cobweb, fraction of a fucking bit of queerness in them. hundred million percent straight... Maybe try a little harder to find those mythical manly men when casting. Stop yelling at twinks because they don't fit your definition of butch. Sorry we're not actually tattooed sailors from World War II who can also do jetés while fucking shirtless. Fuck off. For the record, I was told I wasn't manly enough during rehearsals for a production of Baby. Baby, which is the musical about baby. Baliha. weird that i prefer the three note sting sample that we get in the overture for bally high over the full song itself i have a very hard time in general getting on the same page as a character like bloody mary and that's because bloody mary is one part temptress one part sassy crank, she's not exactly three dimensional, and by that I mean she is nowhere near three dimensional. Bloody Mary and Leont, they are such stereotypes. It's fucking racism what we see on stage. No one should ever want to play. I'm just I, I don't mean to speak for anyone. Maybe you have a completely different interpretation of these characters. Maybe you think they actually do have you know theatrical worth in 2019 from an actor's perspective, from an audience's perspective. Maybe you do. Of course, I'm always willing to hear those arguments. But for my money, my gut reaction, the bacteria in my gut tells me that these are just racist stereotypes. So when Bloody Mary sings about Bali High, it sounds like she's fetishizing the exotic, aka the ethnic. I guess that's what Bloody Mary is preying on the desire of white sailors to escape into that which they find to be different. But you have to, again, infer all of that. You have to do a lot of Fucking legwork to understand what's happening internally for a character like Bloody Mary. It's not actually in the text. So I'm we'll get a little bit more into this in a second, but yeah, that, I mean, spoiler alert, I, you've already heard. My big take Bloody Mary and Leon, bad characters, outmoded, outdated, moldy. I'm
1: gonna wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair and send him on his way going to wave that man right out of my arms. I'm going to wave that man right out of my arms. I'm going to wave that man right out of my arms and send him on his way. Don't try to patch it up. Tear it up. Tear it up. Wash him out. Dry him out. wash him
0: out. During I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair, the women in the show give us many reasons as to why one might want to remove a man from your hair via a wash. (laughs) Uh, One of those is if he roots for different teams... Oh, I get you, Rodgers and Hammerstein, uh, in a show where uh, Billis is consistently mocked for being gay. I get you. I understand what that lyric is referencing. You know, if your man and if you and your man root for different teams, I think I get you. I think I get if he fucking sucks cock. You know what I mean? Does he suck cock? Oh, that might be a oh, that might be a deal breaker. (laughs) This this is a jaunty old time, you know. It's a jaunty tune. Uh, if I were to direct this show, which is not a dream that I have, it's not something I'm pursuing. Please do not call me with offers. Uh, pat pat patty. I oh, if that phone starts ringing, just let it ring, baby. Let it ring. Although I would enjoy staging this number is what I'm trying to say. I would enjoy staging this the most out of all the other numbers. Give most of the lyrics, I would say, to the other women on stage, since I think it's clear that Nellie already has enough time in the spotlight. Okay. Uh, time for the other ladies to shine is what I'm trying to say.
1: I'm as corny as Kansas and August. High as a flag on the 4th of July. If you'll excuse an expression I use, I'm in a
0: I do genuinely enjoy when a character travels from romantic resignation to jubilation over the course of two songs. Nelly's one-two punch of, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair and I'm in love with a wonderful guy, reminds me a lot of Gaby's Lonely Town and lucky to be me from on the town. Uh, Going back to my knock on the repetition that is found in There's Nothing Like a Dame, I wanna say that I don't think repetition is invaluable. I actually, in some cases, it's quite powerful. Those who have access to the Snub Club via Patreon will hear me later this month talking about how much I love repetition and how it's utilized in the song Our Time from Stephen Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along. I also dig Nelly's triumphant, steady proclamation at the end of Wonderful Guy. It's a classic, you know, arms spread wide, face to the sky and the sun fit to bursting like a bubble musical theater moment. The repetition in There Is Nothing Like a Dame by contrast reminds me of a droning folk song you'd hear in a bar. It's a song sung by very manly men, so I'm sure that's what they were going for but it, it doesn't tickle my fucking fancy. Trivia tidbit number one in regards to I'm in love with a wonderful guy. When Mary Martin went to Roger's apartment to hear and to perform the song for the first time, she fell off her piano bench after singing the final 26 words in a single breath. Rogers looked down at her and said, that's exactly what I want. Never do it differently. I think I would have told him from the floor of his apartment to kindly fuck off. Trivia tidbit 2, uh, the song was meant to end with Martin performing a cartwheel, uh, but this was next after she fell into the orchestra pit and knocked out Gertrude Ritman, one of the show's orchestrators. So Mary Martin having a having a slapstick physical comedy time throughout this entire process.
1: Younger than springtime are you? softer than starlight. Are you? Warmer than wings of June are the gentle lips you gave me. Gayer than laughter are you. Sweeter than music are you. Angel and love?
0: Younger Than Springtime is the song during which Cable extols the virtues of a woman who doesn't speak his own language, a woman that he openly refers to as a kid. I watched the concert version, as I said, and when he first meets Liat, he says, oh, you're just a kid. Hey, what's going on here? What is Bloody Mary trying to do? And yet he has sex with her anyway. Like, it's nice that you find Liat attractive and that you think that there's worth in her youth. He sings about, oh, how beautiful your youth is. But you don't, you don't see her as a person, Cable. You don't. You know what this is. You know Bloody Mary is pawning her off on you. What? Why take advantage of the situation and then claim ignorance later when the question of marriage is brought to the table. Oh, that's right. Because you're a horny prick. And like every other guy in this show, you got to come. And that's the most important thing. But when when there are consequences for coming, that's when you freak out. Fantastic. Happy
1: talk, keep talking, happy talk. Talk about things you'd like to do. You got to have a dream. If you don't have a dream, how you gonna have a dream come true?
0: Happy Talk is Bloody Mary's song in the second act of the show. I like the catchiness of the lyric and melody. You've got to have a dream if you don't have a dream. How are you going to have a dream come true? But I'm not here to pretend as if this song is anything other than outdated nonsense. Uh, Bloody Mary, I'm going to just say it one last time, she's a clearly racist caricature. The creation of white men who have no idea how this woman would actually speak or think, oh no, now it's cool. No, it's fine. No, it's fine. The author of the short stories met women like this, huh? Women who actually tried to sell shrunken heads. Come on. It's based on a true experience. Oh, it is. Oh, he did. Did he? Oh, she did. Did she? Well, smell you, Nancy Drew. You really got a one up on me. Ah, hundred and
1: one. Only 60 inches high Every inch is packed with dynamite Her hair is blonde and curly Her curls are whirly-burly Her lips are pips I call her hips Whirly and whirly She's my baby I'm her pet. I'm her boobie She's my trap I am caught and I don't want to run Cause I'm having so much fun with honey bun She's
0: Honey is the number that Nellie sings with Billis during the island's military Thanksgiving Day pageant, and it is just so weird to watch her goofing around with Billis when at this point in the show, we know that she's... Harboring this racism inside her, I I know she feels bad about it. She's really battling with it or whatever. But still, I mean, come on. She's also asked for a transfer to another island so she can get as far away from Emil and his children as possible. So I, th- in terms of that that struggle, I I'm sorry if I don't really fucking feel bad for her during that wrestling match, which her, with her conscience. Oh, I'm wrestling with my conscience. I'm never gonna find it funny. Also, that Billis appears in drag during the number. I am just mm, not interested. So bored. It's so tedious. This this jock mentality, this sailor jock mentality that says, oh, it's so funny that dudes wear a coconut bra or balloons under his shirt. Oh, that's hilarious. He looks like a fucking buffoonery version of a chick, I do say. Give me Billis in pristine RuPaul's Drag Race. Knock your fucking socks out. Drag or give me nothing. That's how I would do it. I want Billis to be bisexual. I want him to be proud. I want him to wear a glam wig and a fucking dress that doesn't fucking quit. And I want the sailors to genuinely love it. Not hoot and holler and mock irony. I want them to fucking love it. It's 2019. Drag is art. Oh, you're being unfair. It's a product of his time. Stop saying that. I don't care. Some conventions deserve to be crushed. You've
1: got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught... You've got to be taught before it's too late Before you are six or seven or eight To hate all the people your relatives hate You've got to be carefully taught
0: You've got to be carefully taught This is the very controversial song from South Pacific. It is known as You've Got to Be Carefully Taught. It is sung by Cable. Uh, It is a song in which he references, quote, eyes that are oddly made which talk about a white guy doing doing his very best aka not very much to sort of work his way through a conversation about racism uh you, you know you're you know how your your parents they teach you how to hate people with with eyes that are oddly made cable come on you're an adult man this is much shorter than i realized it's under 90 seconds on the original album and it's just it's just a little over 2 minutes actually on the revival album but it clearly got to people and the song doesn't even act condemn racism. It just explains where racism comes from, that it's passed down from generation to generation. That it even references the existence of racism is what seems to have bothered people so greatly. Uh, back in its time, back in the day, Rogers Hammerstein, and Logan were advised to cut the song by those who cited it as uh, embarrassing, didactic, and quote not helpful to the cause of brotherhood. So, of course, that uh, coming from supposedly, presumably liberal progressive people uh they even they thought that the idea of talking about racism during a musical theater piece uh would not be helpful to progressive uh, stances and progressive goals. So there you go. Uh, two Georgia senators stated that the song had quote an underlying philosophy inspired by Moscow subtle senators. Subtle. Though senators uh, were also upset by the show's interracial relationships as they were obsessed with, quote, pure southern lines and disgusted by, quote, half-breeds. Their term, not mine. I am not naming these senators, by the way, because... fuck those guys. Despite any number of objections and the difficulty they faced booking the show's tour in the Deep South, the writing team never removed the song. However, an early draft of the book, which saw Emile comparing America's prejudices to those of the Axis powers, was heavily diluted to avoid causing too much offense. Nelly and Cable deal with racism, but many have pointed out that Emile is a plantation owner, so he benefits from underpaid native labor. This is not addressed to any real extent, though Bloody Mary does bitterly describe French plantation owners as, quote, stingy bastards. So that's about as deep as we go. Enough already. By the time we get to this nearly was mine, I I, I was of the attitude of you know, you, you can have some enchanted evening, you can have younger than springtime, or you can have this nearly was mine. You get one. Alright, fine. Two. You get two. But not three. Not all three. They're so languid. Oh, and don't worry. I didn't get into it. But they're... Are easily a half dozen reprises of all of those ballads I just mentioned, scattered all throughout the show. At one point, Nellie and Emil do a fucking medley, a trio of just reprises of songs that we've already heard. This is in the first act. We we just heard those songs, Rodgers and Hammerstein. We don't need to do a fucking parade, a parade of your best hits. Oh, talk about back padding Talk about fucking victory laps. Oh yeah, These songs are like boomerangs. I wrote this down. They're like boomerangs. They just keep coming back at you, adjusts Ty. tie. Trivia. I have a little bit of trivia. Many of the songs that were cut from the original production would later be repurposed for other Rodgers and Hammerstein shows, including Pipe Dream, Cinderella, and The King and I. I tend to forget that what a composer creates for one show very often winds up in another project entirely. That's why I gotta keep that trunk of songs nearby just in case. That is the song deconstruction portion of this episode. Uh, Normally we would get a word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee, but we have a brand new Patreon donor, that being good old Brandon. Thank you so much for being a monthly donor, and as a monthly donor, you are now entitled to a musical shout-out, and so we will now hear that musical shout-out right this very moment. Take it away! (laughs) Oh, hi, Patrick, it's me, your best buddy, SpongeBob SquarePants. Uh, I know that, Spongebob. You're my bestest buddy in the whole wide world. Uh, Hey, Spongebob, I got a question for you. Uh, Why are we here not in the ocean, but in some sort of recording studio? Are we supposed to be singing about coffee or something? Let's sing about coffee. No, you're not singing about coffee. (gasps) It's Squidward. Oh, wow, it's Squidward. All three of us, the bestest of friends in a recording studio in front of a microphone, ready to sing about coffee. Yeah, coffee. No, we're not singing about coffee. We're supposed to be singing a musical shout-out for Brandon. Brandon? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right, but I feel a tickle in my throat. I don't know if I can sing it. Patrick, you sing it. No, I'm too embarrassed. I can't sing. Squidward, you do it. You're musical. I'm musical in the sense that I play the clarinet. I don't sing. I. I could do it. I be the captain, the pirate, who sings the SpongeBob SquarePants theme song. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Yeah, you just do it. Okay. Are you ready, Squidward? No, I already said I'm not singing. All right. Are you ready, Squidward? Yeah. All right. Five, six, seven, eight. Oh... Who gets out his wallet to pull out money? Brandon Shockney. Who's a right jolly friend to you and to me? Brandon Shockney. If a musical shall not be something he wish, Brandon Shockney. Then drop on our deck and flub like a fish, Brandon Brandon Shockney. Brandon Shockney. Brandon Shockney. <laughs> Brandon Shockney. Brandon Shockney. Hey, oh, that was a right fucked up miss it was. But we got through it, didn't we? Yeah, I suppose we did. <laughs> uh, that was a great experience that I'm sure everyone will have enjoyed listening to. I doubt it. I'm Squidward. I got fired from a suicide hotline because I was too depressing. Final thoughts on South Pacific. Now, back in its time, South Pacific was simply announced as the winner of the 1950 award for Best Musical. The other nominees uh, were not uh, announced publicly. Uh, None would be announced, as we learned in our Overture episode, until the year 1956. So we have to do a little bit of work here to understand what other shows would have been uh, under consideration. So shows from that season that luckily would have been considered include gentlemen prefer blondes. Uh, this show made Carol Channing a star uh, to the extent that in 1974 the show was essentially remade with a new title, that being Lorelei, so that she could star in it all over again. There was a show called Lost in the Stars, which was written by Kurt Vile and Maxwell Anderson. Uh, this is based on the Alan Payton novel, Cry the Beloved Country. Uh, not going into the plot right now, but needless to say, it seems quite heavy. <laughs> And the last show I found was Miss Liberty. It's a musical comedy about a young reporter trying to find the woman who served as Frederick Augusta Bartholdi's model for the Statue of Liberty. It was not well received apparently. I don't think any of these shows should have won out over South Pacific though I will say that despite its well-deserved place in musical theater history, I can't deny that, it's not my cup of tea. I think that's been made very clear. Maybe it's the military aspect Maybe it's the heavy reliance on languid heterosexual romance. Maybe it's a little bit of column A. Maybe it's a little bit of column B. I'm the little girl from the meme. Why not have both? But I wouldn't, so I wouldn't necessarily seek out a production of South Pacific. I get that it's respectable. I get that it's well-written. I just don't think it's perfect, as so many do. A lot of people, I think, throw the word perfect around in regards to South Pacific, and that needs to come to an immediate end. It doesn't help that South Pacific is chiefly concerned with how white people feel about racism rather than its few characters of color. The show's themes and ideas were progressive for the time, but we've come a long way since then, and we should be allowed to point out the show's limitations. When it comes to ranking the show, I don't believe South Pacific ranks above the other classic shows we've discussed on the podcast, those being Kiss Me Kate and Man of La Mancha. I'm going to put South Pacific at number six, right between Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet of 1812 and Shrek the Musical. I do have a couple, an announcement in regards to another change in the ranking. Uh, Grind has moved from the number nine slot to the number eight slot. So now it rests between Shrek the Musical and Bubbling Brown Sugar. Ultimately, I think I was a little too hard on Grind. I do think it is definitely better than The Goodbye Girl. Well, upon further consideration, I would much rather listen to The Oddities of Grind, rather than the blasé of the goodbye girl. And Grind might have some really weird tonal shift problems in its book, but it is clearly uh, much more uh, original and much more well-written than Bubbling Brown Sugar, which is basically a magic school bus tour uh, through Harlem that teaches us nothing, if you remember. Uh, I also had a question from listener Matt uh, asking why Maid of La Mancha fell so quickly from the number one spot. And uh, honestly, it's because I think that... That, uh, Man of La Mancha does have some weak moments. I don't like the priest material. I think it is uh, highly skippable, whereas Carolina Change and Passing Strange are number one and number two slot shows uh, currently. They are just great to me, essentially uh, straight through. I think that is what puts them above uh, Man of La Mancha, and that is why Man of La Mancha is now at number three. So there you go. Show-related ephemera? Oh, you betcha. These songs have become so ubiquitous that of course they're used to commercials. I always want a good, goofy commercial. So the first bit of audio you're going to hear is a commercial for Joni Long Nails, which incorporates Some Enchanted Evening. Let's hear that, Patty.
1: Some enchanted evening. You may see a You may see a stranger. Would you rather kiss a total stranger than shake hands? Now you can have beautiful nails instantly, anytime, anywhere. Jonay Artificial Nails can make it your choice.
0: Utterly ridiculous, just to let you know. During that commercial, a very nervous man in a tuxedo approaches a very beautiful woman in a very 80s dress, and she holds out her hand for him to take upon first introduction, but she retracts her hand in horror when she realizes she's not wearing Jonay long nails. <laughs> Maybe it's Jeunet I don't know. I also found a commercial for Clearall loving hair. Uh, let's let's get that. My gray hair makes me feel
1: so old. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna wash that gray right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that. Loving Care Color Lotion from Clairol washes away your gray and washes in your own natural color. Loving Care is different. It's gentle. It has no peroxide or ammonia. So I wash that gray right out of my hair. Oh
0: yes, I wash
1: that gray right out of my hair. Wash that gray right out of your hair with Clairol Loving Care.
0: Yeah, you didn't hear that wrong. That woman is uh, singing the lyric, I'm going to wash that gray right out of my hair. They keep talking about how this product washes the gray out don't think that's possible. I I think you're just, I think you're pouring nasty-ass chemicals on your fucking head, and I think you should stop. I I feel, uh, just just don't worry about the long nails. Don't worry about the gray hairs. Just live. (laughs) That, that's my advice. Just live. Normally, at this point in the show, we would take a ride on the musical carousel to determine which show we are going to discuss, to discuss on the next episode of The Musical Man. But as I mentioned, we have a brand new $5 a month Patreon donor. Uh, that would be Brandon. And because he is a $5 a month Patreon donor, he has the ability to stop the musical carousel for one time only and dictate which show we discuss in our next episode. And Brandon has chosen none other than Mel Brooks' The Producers. That's right. We're going to be talking about The Producers next week. Very excited about that. We also have a new $10 a month Patreon donor, and that would be Haley. Uh, Haley, you will receive your incentives uh, over the next two weeks. Uh, no spoilers on what show she has chosen, uh, but again, we're going to be getting those over the next two weeks. Uh, the Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash If you could find it in your heart to be like Brandon or Haley, and and donate to the show every month. That would be fantastic. If you donate $1 a month, you're going to get a verbal shout-out every single week. Let's do those now. Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, Marisol. Thank you so much for donating. If you donate $3 a month, you get a musical shout-out in the style of a a composer or musical theater character of your choice. If you donate $5 a month, you also, of course, as we mentioned, dictate which show we discuss on the podcast. And if you Donate. $10 $10 a month. If you are like Haley, Brad, and Marisol, I believe those are our three $10 a month donors, you will get access to a series known as The Snub Club, which is dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never, 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 never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. In February, we covered Amelie, and on the last Wednesday of this month, we'll be releasing episode two of The Snow Club, which is dedicated to Merrily. We roll along. Fantastic! Uh, donations go toward the purchase of cast recordings movie rentals offsetting pod bean costs if we ever get to a point where the total monthly donations equal hundred dollars or more uh, that will result in my producing a new series known as the movie musical man which will be dedicated to movie musicals we normally wouldn't encounter huh, how about that let's keep marching towards that goal if you're listening to the show Thank you. If you're doing it through iTunes, please leave a five-star review. Please give that rating and review. I love, love, love reading the iTunes reviews. Haven't had one in a short amount of time. Let's make sure that those keep coming in. Find us in the iTunes store. On Podbean, uh, that is the uh, main streaming source for us. That's musicalmanpod.podbean.com Now that I say that, that's not really our main streaming source because we're also on Spotify and Stitcher and people use those. They don't use Podbean. What the fuck am I talking about? As I mentioned, we're on Twitter at MusicalManPod, and you can email us at MusicalManPod at gmail.com. I got an email while talking to uh, Haley about her incentives, and she pointed out something very important. Daniel Breaker, who played the youth in Passing Strange, also played Donkey in the original Broadway production of Shrek the Musical. How I missed that, I will never know. I felt so silly, but I also felt very grateful uh, for this revelation, and I thank Haley for it. Thank you very much to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and zach little for our music uh so what should (laughs) i once again have been scared by the doorbell oh well you know what that sound means yes just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting oh well we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of the musical man so long farewell off of and good night